chapter 12. I'll be reading and unpacking Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, an infallible word through his servant to our brothers and sisters in that ancient church community. Father, help me unpack in its context. Pay attention to its words and its structure. Only as a means to the end, Lord, of seeing what you are saying to us right now who believe or will ever believe in this race of faith. Work by your Holy Spirit who's present with us. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, there are nine commands there are nine imperatives, practical applications for those who profess faith in Jesus right here in this passage. Now, what I want to do is skip over right now the most important word in the passage, which is the word therefore at the beginning of verse 12. And we'll come back to it towards the end here. What I want to do is quickly work our way through these commands that are laid out in verses 12 through 17. So let's begin with verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Okay, remember the larger context going back to the beginning here of chapter 12. It is 
a racing metaphor, not a car race, it's a running race, it's a marathon, it's 26 point something miles from the time you come to Jesus and the time they put you in the ground. It's a race. Look at verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so when a runner is running at the beginning, we're strong, right? The arms are going up and down with ease. We're free. But when you get to the sixth or seventh or eighth mile and you get overcome with exhaustion, your, your hands and arms begin to droop and they're not so free. Your knees begin to buckle and you're ready to go down. That's his picture. That's his metaphor of the Christian life. And that we, therefore, as believers in Jesus, be re-energized is absolutely crucial. And that's what this whole particular letter that he wrote to the church essentially has been about perseverance. Or as Jesus said, those who persevere or endure to the end will be saved. The New Testament, it's clear that our perseverance as Christians is assured by God's preservation of us. I'm not going to go reiterate and show that this morning. You can go to the website, look under perseverance on the topic. There are tons of sermons backing that up. But just let me give you a taste. After listing many of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life, and says these are to be shown in your life, the Apostle Peter then concludes this way in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling. Did he call you? And your election. Are you chosen? Make it sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God has predestined every believer to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, crystal clear. But God has also appointed the means for that to happen. Like Hebrews 12. The command. Run, Christian. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By looking to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. And as you run, 
And life hits. Pain hits. You feel weary. He's saying, don't drop out. Don't quit, but, here's his words, strengthen your hands and your knees. If you drop out of the race, you need to examine whether you are truly in Christ. Remember how the writer said it already back in chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ. In the original, in the Greek, that's a perfect tense verb. It's a past thing that's happened to us, not future. This is true of you with ongoing ramifications in your life. That is absolutely true. You have become a partaker of Christ. Well, how do you know? The next clause. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Okay. So, what we just saw was verses 12 and 13. That is the writer's metaphor. It's it's his picture of the Christian life. So now the question, well, what is that Christian life? I mean, what's the reality to which the picture or the metaphor is pointing? Well, that's what he does with the rest of the passage. In verses 14 to 17. In verse 14, he says, here it is in in a nutshell, the general statement of this race. Then he restates it. In verses 15 to 17, where he gets more specific. So let's look first at verse 14. Here's the race. Why we need our hands strengthened and our knees energized. Strive for peace with everyone. And strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So here are two commands that he gives that seem, you test it and see whether you agree, that mirror the the two great commandments that Jesus gave to us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Okay, here, pursue Holiness. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Pursue peace with all men. So first, he says, strive. This is this. He, 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 you know, this is very focused energy. Strive after. Go hard after what? Peace. With all people. Another, which would mean seek to love them. In other words, don't make your life's aim to be a miserable, contrary person. To be around. Bring peace. Now, this does not mean 
strive for peace with people at any cost. Never means that in the Bible. Paul put it this way in Romans 12, 18, very clearly. Essentially saying the same thing. If possible, there you go. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, on your part, live peaceably with all people. Because Paul's a realist. Sometimes it's not possible to be at peace with everyone. Sometimes the other person clings to unforgiveness or bitterness, and you can't control them, and you can't do anything about that. And at other times, well, if I just caved in on my, the way I live my life in holiness, then they'll accept me and they'll be at peace with me. No. Or if I just say, you know what, I'm going to change my doctrine, what, what I understand truth to be, then, then, then everything would be peaceful between me and that person or that group of people. No, you're, you're never to sacrifice truth or, or holiness in your walk with God for the sake of peace. But what he's saying is, apart from that, don't take yourself personally, so seriously. Don't be careful not to attribute meaning of why that person said this or why they did that as if it was a personal affront to you. Give them the, the benefit of the doubt. And even if they did, take the blows and pursue peace. Don't hold grudges. Pursue it. This is the walk. Next, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for moral purity, both inwardly and outwardly. Jesus said the same thing, just a little bit more descriptively. This is how he put it in Matthew chapter 5. Verses 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. That's a strong metaphor. That's what this verse means when it says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It means if there's no movement no life at all in your life moving toward holiness or love for God, then you won't go to heaven. Not because any person ever can earn heaven by their pursuit of holiness or moral improvement, but because those who are being saved 
by God's grace alone are those whom God has called to faith by His indwelling Holy Spirit. And the pursuit or the direction in your life of holiness is the evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's why. Listen to how Paul put this in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He writes to the church, Christian, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Okay. God chose you to be saved from your sin through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Okay, that's his general statement. That's what the metaphor is pointing to. He says, let's say it again and unpack it more now in verses 15 to 17. And notice that phrase at the beginning of verse 15. See to it, Christian. See to it. That phrase controls grammatically the entirety of verses 15 and 16. Let's read it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. See to it no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What is that? Well, that's a warning. That's a warning to this group of Jewish Christians, the Hebrew church there, who were tempted to abandon the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrificial death and historical bodily resurrection from the dead as all-sufficient before God, and that's all they need. But by their debating whether to go back to animal sacrifices and temple worship. He's saying they would come short and fail to obtain the grace of the gospel. If you abandon the grueling race of faith in Christ, trust in Christ alone, then it will become evident that in the end you have failed to obtain the grace of God. And there is always throughout church history the danger, the reality that there are always some professing Christians in the church who have never been born again. They've never received the grace of God. R remember how the author warned about this earlier in the letter, saying, be careful 
that, that, that you're not like Israel in Moses' time. Because even though they all came out of Egypt, I'm free, they were not at all all spiritually connected to God or saved. This is how he said it in chapter 3. Turn back there for a second. In verses 16 to 19. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear? that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient. And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He just says it again right here in our passage. Don't fail to obtain the grace of God. Next, see to it that no root of bitterness spring up or springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. He's saying, don't miss the grace of God in the midst of of your pain, in the midst of your trials, and thus become bitter against God or against people, and thus that bitterness infect the Christian community. Then he says, strive after holiness. He says, in this way, see to it, Verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, sexually immoral is translating the Greek word pornos. Yeah, you can hear it. That's where we get it from. But in, in the Bible, pornos what it's referring to is any kind of sinful sexual activity, which biblically means any sexual relationship outside the covenant of marriage, defined as between one male biologically and one female biologically. Because within marriage, the sexual union pictures the union between Christ and the church. That's Ephesians 5. But outside that marital union, sexual relationships, all of them, heterosexual or homosexual or bestiality or anything else, all of them defile 
not only those who are involved, but also the entire church if it goes unchecked. Just read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. So the writer says, see to it that there is not any of you living in practicing sexual sin because that is a sign you're not pursuing holiness. Or with the metaphor, that's a sign in the marathon, the Boston Marathon, running through the streets, you're growing weary, you're getting off the path. You are failing to obtain the grace of God. And if you don't strengthen your hands and strengthen your knees and get back into the race and start running, you won't see God. And then he says, see to it. See to it that no one is unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. We've got to feel that punch. Read the whole Genesis account of Esau. He is portrayed in the Bible as a successful, worldly man. Jacob didn't expect it later on. He hadn't seen him in a couple decades. He was fearful of what Esau might do to him. He was shocked at how nice he was to him. He was likable. He was a man's man. He, he, he was a hunter. He was a, he, was a, he was a leader. And when we see him later, over 400 men followed him. Esau was a self-made, wealthy, politically powerful man. His sons were heads of tribes. But he fell. He failed where it counted most. He failed with his creator, with God. What happened? Esau's attitude, we read it opening up this sermon. His attitude was, I'm hungry. And I want to, therefore, satisfy that desire. Right now. I mean, what good is it, this promise? That's, that's way off in the future. The right of the firstborn son to inherit all. I, don't, I want now. That's the picture the Hebrew writer's been painting all along. Okay, I'll swear to you, Jacob, you can have my birthright. You can have those promises. I'm going to satisfy my desire right now. Think about the two biggest drives in the human being. Hunger 
If you don't know that yet, like I didn't know it in my 20s because I could eat anything I wanted to without gaining weight. Start to try to become more healthy. You will know how tormenting that is. And what's the other one? It is our sexual drives. Don't sell the promises of God to satisfy them like Esau. But run. Pursue holiness. Why is it so important? The next verse. Christian, for, there it is, here's the reason. For you know that afterward, when he, that is Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, the promise, he was rejected for or because he found within himself no chance to repent. It wasn't there. Even, even though outwardly he grieved that he lost the blessing, he sought it with tears. That should send, and it's meant to send, holy shivers down the spine of every baptized professing Christian. Do not presume upon the grace of God. Don't fail to obtain it. He is saying to the church, He's saying to us, you're in the Boston Marathon. Run! Do not say, Oh, I'm just taking a break as I got off the street and I went into this house for a while to sit down and, and absorb in my bitterness toward God or, or to others. I'm just doing this for a while. Let me do this. I'll, I'll come out of the house back onto the street and finish the race. Or I just get into this house of sexual immorality. After all, she's my girlfriend. Or my boyfriend. Or look, I, I don't have the same sexual desires for the same sex. Only, I mean for the opposite sex, but only for the same. So I, I, therefore, I'm hungry. I'll sell my birthright. He's saying, you think you will come out of that house and get back in the race? Are you sure? You may find, like Esau, no place, no true desire for God, for genuine repentance. Those are the nine commands. That's the streets of Boston in the Boston Marathon. Now, let's go back to the most important word. To put it in its context like we're meant to read it. It's the word therefore at the beginning of verse 12, which means get the flow, what we saw last week. In other words, because of verses four through 11, 
Therefore, what we just heard, run the race, verses 12 to 17. In a nutshell, therefore, meaning since the loving discipline of God designs your pain for your ultimate good, for, for producing sanctification Holiness in you. Therefore, strengthen the weary hands and knees. And run on the straight path of pursuing holiness. I don't know if you see it yet. See, is this stuff worth why you see me over this month right now is Dan Fuller's memorial services in three weeks. Feeling in it more than ever, just saying, thank you, Dan Fuller, to think through the passage. Therefore, it's huge. In other words, since, he says, and what he just said, since God is pursuing holiness in you, Christian, through discipline, suffering, persecution, pain, he's doing it as your father who loves you, therefore... You are to strive after that holiness that he is doing. In other words, we're being commanded to live the life of people who are already saved. We're sons, daughters by faith in Jesus. He can't be more clear. Look back at verse 7 that he just said. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He's working trials and pains in your race for your good, for your holiness. Therefore, pursue the fruit of what God is growing in you by his sovereign providence. That's what the therefore means at the beginning of verse 12. Now, just concisely, let me just do this. I'm going to give to you my paraphrase to say, in other words, what I see in the text and you can wrestle with and see whether you ultimately would agree. But I'm going to paraphrase essentially chapter 12 going back to verse 1, but I'll do it concisely meaning saying it in very other words to make clear how I see it. Here we go. He's saying, Christians, the persecution, suffering, the heartache, the sickness that we endure in this race are part of God's loving design for our good and for our holiness, yielding the peaceful fruit of the spirit of righteousness. Therefore, be strengthened by this truth and join God in pursuing His design of holiness in you. For example, don't grow bitter and throw away your birthright as a child of God's discipline by saying, well, if that's the way this sovereign God treats His children, I'm going back to the world of sexual immorality, etc. Nobody's saying, 
Hear, hear the plea. Don't do that, but remember verse 11. Look at it. For the moment, it's true, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so he's saying, feel that, believe that, trust your heavenly Father in that, and strive after that very holiness that the Father is working in you through child training discipline. That's the passage. One of God's main goals is to take us who have come to His Son into a deeper faith, a deeper reliance upon Him. That deepening is the root of holiness. That's what it's doing. Now, just for a moment, did Jesus ever sin in His true humanity? No. Did the Father discipline, meaning train him? Yes. The writer can't be more clear than what he said back in chapter 5, verse 8. Although Jesus was a son, not only a son, he's the creator of the universe who became a human being. But although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. In Jesus' human nature, his, his human soul and walk as a human being in this, his body, there was learning. There was, in other words, experiential depth of obedience that was learned through obedience to the Father in the midst of suffering. Okay, how much more? For all whom He is saving, which is all of us sinners, how much more? Do we have to learn? And that's chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. And this is not a peripheral teaching in the Scripture. It is not obscure. It permeates it. I'll just give you two examples. First, if you turn to 2 Corinthians, listen to Paul. Listen to him. Reflect as an apostle in his own life, and not only his, but those who are with him. 
2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, as he writes to the church in the city of Corinth. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our, okay, hear his experience, of our affliction, persecution, which came to us in Asia. And that we, here's the internal of Paul, we we were burdened excessively. Hear the racing metaphor. Beyond our strength. So that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Paul's, you can hear it there, drooping hands. Weak knees. And then the glorious next word. In the Greek, henna. In English, in order that. What? Okay. Paul, there are sinful people throwing you in jail, stoning you. Threatening you and the others. You're despairing of life. That's sinful. It is. And demonic spirits are behind it. But then he says this was in order for a particular purpose. So clearly the purpose is not the antagonist in his life. The purpose is God's purpose. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but bring us to the place where deeper and more so we would trust in God who raises the dead. God had a design in Paul's uh, afflictions and burden and despair. And that's why he says, in order that God was up to something. The Lord's discipline there in that context is not because of some specific sin that Paul did. But it was for Paul's deepening and his fellow Christians with him. The deepening of their faith. Which God, by His grace, was working in Paul, in his tears, in his at times saying, please just kill me. One more. Listen, listen to how clear Paul is about this at the end of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. And so to keep me from being too elated, meaning arrogant or puffed up because of his revelations that God gave him. And he's a sinful man like you and me. To keep me from being too puffed up by the surpassing greatness of the revelations. What happened? A thorn. Picture a big thorn sticking in you. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan 
in order to harass me, in order to keep me from being too puffed up. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. That, that, that it should leave me. Please take this away. But the Lord said to me, No. My grace, Paul, is sufficient for you because my power is being made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because when I'm weak, then by the power of Christ is what he's, I'm strong. He's building my faith and reliance and depth and relationship with himself. And so all of God's adopted children are sinners. Being saved and forgiven and delivered for eternity in the future resurrection by, by God's grace alone. And thus, down here, we are in a constant battle to rely on God, on Christ, on His promises that are future-oriented and laid up for us. To rely on those against our pride and arrogance or like Esau. My desire right now is this. So he says, run. I'm going to close the sermon. Just say, listen to this letter from God our Savior, dear believer, who adopted us as his children. I glean it from Hebrews 12. My beloved child, from your wise and loving Father, my eternal Son purchased your sanctification. He purchased my custom-made design of saving and molding and growing you through all the pain and suffering and troubled waters that you must go through. Therefore, pursue in and through all your pain and suffering and setbacks, pursue my holiness and peace with other people by not growing bitter or by not selling my grace for the fleeting pleasures of sin, like sexual immorality. 
Don't be like Esau and miss out. Don't deny the inheritance of eternal joy that comes through suffering and many trials which I have ordained for your holiness. Don't let the sin of unbelief in what I am writing to you and the experience of difficulties and unanswered questions and pain. Don't let that cause you to trade in my grace for a single meal. Strengthen your drooping hands and your weak knees because I'm in this race with you more than you will ever know. Love the Savior and sanctifier of your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do work with all of the experience of our humanity. The elation of joy, relationships, and even adoration and worship of you and the feelings of de depression or pain or despair of life. At times, the, the, the horrific physical pain and suffering that we human beings go through. But because of your son, Jesus Christ, who bore our sin on the cross. All of those things are working together for good to all who love you and are called according to your purpose. To the glory of your holy name through your son, Jesus. We thank you. Amen and amen. Let's